and welcome to Club Soderbergh, a refreshing, quenching podcast for all you Steven Soderbergh fans out there, and indeed film fans. The purpose of this podcast is to cover, critique, gush, and possibly rage at Steven Soderbergh's film career of almost 30 years. Although concentrating only on features, I'm sure we'll go, we'll go along into future episodes. His shorts, documentaries, and TV shows will all be woven in as well. As I'm a completist, we'll be progressing in chronological order, but we'll ramp up from the next episode to cover two films per month. Even at that cracking pace, it seems our savant director, unable to rest on his short retirement, has two films in post-production and another greenlit. This podcast may never end, but who would want it to? I'm Carla Donnelly, creator of Club Soderbergh. You may know me from my other incredibly specific podcast on Melbourne Theatre, Across the Aisle. Many moons ago, I did a collaboration about Behind the Candelabra with my co-hosts Maggie and Jesse on their film blog Picturescue that sowed the seed that has flowered today. So without much further ado, Maggie, Jesse, a little introduction. Well, I'm Jesse Scott. I'm a video artist, but my practice has kind of bled into broader screen culture in various ways over the last 10 years. And I've done film reviewing, and as Carla mentioned, Maggie and I ran a blog called Picture Skew for a while. I did preview screening for MIF for many years. I've run digital storytelling workshops and short doco projects, and I was one of the founding co-directors of the Channel's Video Art Festival, which is happening again later this year. And I'm extremely opinionated, which I think is the major (laughs) qualification for anyone making a podcast. Yes. (laughs) Hi, I'm Maggie, um, Jessie's older sister. Although she does seem like more of a real grown-up sometimes. <laughs> I'm a writer um, and I've been part of two um, anthologies that were published by Pan Macmillan um, in the last couple of years. I'm also a film buff and I've done a bit of reviewing and um, previewing for MIF as well. So I'm really looking forward to doing this podcast and watching more films as a result of that because yeah. I've been watching a lot of TV mm. and I think it would be nice to watch some films again and, chrono- you know, in the whole chronological thing, get a really good sense of someone's body of work. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm excited and I'm not that opinionated, but I like a bit of irreverent humour, so that's what I'll try and bring to this. <laughs> I think you are a pretty opinionated. Yeah. <laughs> I like to think I'm not, though. <laughs> okay, well, we'll just gloss over that. I'm really shy. <laughs> I actually think that that's a fantastic point, particularly about TV now, because we're sort of like moving back into the golden, quote unquote, Mm. golden age of cinema of blockbusters. And particularly now it's like the the birth of, you know, indie film as we know it today. So that's a really interesting point that we can sort of look at how film has progressed along with the whole TV thing now as well. But I'm so glad to have you guys here. Obviously, you both bring so much experience and different things to the table and I really have enjoyed the things that we've done in the past so I'm looking forward to this so why Steven Soderbergh he is my favorite director but why the reasons he is my favorite director is what I think will make a compelling criticism of a body of work a massively underrated artist with an output that would rival three directors lifetimes from Kafka to Ocean's Eleven to a four and a half hour film about Che Guevara he has an act for finding the magical in the mundane and the mundane in the magical He brings something fresh and different to each project he works on, but somehow also maintains a language of direction that is entirely his own. The youngest director to win the Palme d'Or at Cannes, with his debut Sex, Lies and Videotape, he often writes, shoots and edits his own films, which has given him a mobility and swiftness of working I don't believe any other director possesses. 
In an age of bloated rambling, two-hour cinema, here's an editor after my own heart. I could go on and on. But Jesse and Maggie, what are your feelings on Soderbergh and this project? Well, I will go on and on, Carla. Thanks. <laughs> um, for me, it's not so much that I'm the world's biggest Soderbergh fan, um, but some of his films are among my favourite. Um, and as someone who doesn't quite fit squarely into either the film or the art camp and kind of continues to dabble in both, I see Soderbergh as like a proto-dabbler. Um He's Such someone... a great term, proto-dabbler. <laughs> he gives dabbling a good name, I yeah. think. <laughs> um, although, you know, he's this auteur, art house director. He's also a successful genre filmmaker. He now is also a TV producer. And this enthusiasm for all forms of movie making and his ability to draw links between them um, rather than boundaries around them is something I really love about him. And, and also, he's also a painter. But really? I did not know oh, that. Yeah, he's a painter. He... That's why he quit film making film because he wanted to concentrate on painting Um, didn't lynch do that as well david lynch yeah uh, i think he's just sort of always painted yeah yeah and And he he sort of went back for transcendental oh yeah transcendental meditation meditation. anyway we're not talking about lynch (laughs) (laughs) um but i also carla i also appreciate that he can shoot and edit and that he doesn't sort of represent this traditional vision of a film director who uh you know is a genius directing this lower order of creative, um, you know, minions, basically. That yeah, he's... he's definitely down in the weeds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's really great. And also he does small films. He does weird, specific, extra long films, as you mentioned, that nobody wants to watch. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be my greatest challenge of this podcast, just finally sitting down and watching that two-parter. Yeah. yeah, so he really understands medium and form, not just content, and his films are always interesting and yeah, his ego is less evident than his curiosity, I think. Agreed. That's an amazing way of putting it. Yeah, I would agree with what you both said. Um, I like the fact that he doesn't have a, he doesn't impose his style. Um, he's more subtle. And so, you know, when you think of other auteurs like Tarantino or Scorsese you know, or Lynch, for that matter, you just, you know, there's a style there. There's a, you know, there's a statement. And it's, I mean, they're great, but at the same time, they're just interminable. And um inflexible as well yeah so it's sort of like he, he does as my, as um jesse said he does really experiment with form mm. in every way from yeah. cinematography to direction to where it's set to the yeah. kinds of characters that he has in the films that's right and i think he said um that he tries to serve the story so he goes with the story first that's the most important thing for him and then he'll try and find the form that fits the story rather than imposing a style on the story how amazing (laughs) (laughs) we would have thunk wow (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah the reason um i think the three of us have really been attracted to Soderbergh is we've ended up in some lines at MIF in the past. Every time there's a Soderbergh film with the three of us end up in a line yeah. and talking about him and just going, Oh my God, he's fucking, you know, just having great conversation. Um, and I think I remember one in particular after the girlfriend experience screened and um, we were all intrigued and skeptical about it because he used a real life porn star and um it's about you know a cool girl and the politics of that you know i think we were both we're all in, intrigued by that um another sort of thing i'm interested in is that soderberg he's he's a white you know middle class 
kind of auteur genius type character or he could be seen as that but he somehow isn't at the same mm-hmm. time like so i think you know that's something we can explore and talk about in terms of you know the feminist framework um yeah i think that's particularly fascinating about him because like wes anderson most people that i talk to about him thinks he's gay they mm. think he's queer like people are more mortified that wes anderson isn't gay you know so i think that that's a really super interesting element about his work as well Mm -hmm. and i think this sex lies and videotape really oh man there's there's some stuff there (laughs) (laughs) just a little bit not not a lot (laughs) (laughs) all right so well without further ado i'm excited to get started so let's move on to our first film the amazing sex lies and videotape 1989 Why don't you let me tape you? Doing what? Talking. About what? About sex, your sexual history, sexual preferences. What makes you think I'd discuss that with you? Nothing. So before Sex, Lies and Videotape, Soderbergh um, was working, making and editing industrial films for a quid. Um, and he was also doing some of some of his own creative projects, writing scripts, making short films. Um, and this film was the first feature that he wrote and directed himself. Uh, it's inspired by his own bad behaviour with women in his early 20s. Uh, he claims he was sp- uh, sleeping with a bunch of different women and playing mind games with them all. <laughs> and um, he says at one day he was at a bar and three of these women were within spitting distance. Mm. And um, around that time, he became quite disgusted with himself. So he decided to end all these relationships and move from Louisiana to L.A. and take his career seriously. Um, Sold all his stuff, you know, and got in the car. And he wrote the script in eight days on that journey. And was it like the tender age of 26? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. well, even younger. Yeah, probably. The movie came out when he was 26. I think he was like 24 or something. Oh, my God. So yeah, he you know he had he you know dug deep, done a bit of soul searching. That's, it's funny I didn't know that story, but it makes sense of like the quite angsty elements of it. I think. Yeah, and manner mannerisms. Mm. But sorry, keep mm. going. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, he got to LA and he got the financing for the film. Um, he says that he thinks the four characters in the film are himself cut into quarters. Beautiful. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> We've got the Madonna-like Anne, who's played by Andy McDowell. Her sexy sister, Cynthia, who's played by Laura San Giacomo. <laughs> yeah, San Giacomo she, yeah. Was she in White Man Can't Jump? Yeah. I think she was. Was she? I'm not sure. Uh, no, she wasn't. She wasn't no. Just she, Shoot she, Me. Just Shoot Me. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's an aside. Um, so I she's having Rosie an... Perez in White Man Can't yeah, Jump. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so she's having an affair with Anne's Lothario husband, John, who's played by Peter Gallagher. And then there's John's mysterious college friend Graham, who is he of the feathered mullet, James Spader. Oh, my God, amazing. <laughs> and his hobby is to record women talking about their sex lives on videotape, and he also quite likes to get off on that. Um, so Soderbergh mostly relates to Graham and to the point where James Spader is quoted as saying, we never talked about it, but there would be days when I'd get out of wardrobe and come to the set and we'd both be wearing the same thing. Ah. <laughs> Anyway, Soderbergh made Sex, Lies and Videotape in 1988 
for 1.2 million and it played to audiences at Sundance um, in January 1989 uh, to great acclaim. People went crazy for it. He won the Palme d'Or at Dior at Cannes, as, um, as Carla mentioned before, and he was nominated for an Oscar in 1990. So after that, the film grossed 25 million. So it was a real success and it also heralded in the American independent cinema movement from the sort of late 80s into the 90s mm. where um, films were uh, box office successes but um, were really low budget. And, and not necessarily funded by mm. a yeah. studio. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, they also sort of experimented with the city and form and didn't treat audiences like idiots. Mm. So that was a sort of – I think there was a bit of a tendency for that in the 80s. But mm. anyway – so my question is, throwing it to you guys, has the film SLV dated? As in aged? Because <laughs> I have been thinking about dating a lot since I rewatched it. Yeah, I was dating. Like, I was like, what if Graham was on Tinder? <laughs> I'm like, what would this movie well, look like in the age of Tinder? You know what has really dated is that now the idea the idea of impotence is dated because now he would just take Viagra and that would oh, be yeah, the wow. end of it, you know? I didn't even he wouldn't think have of to, that. you know, expunge his personal demons or, you know, like... But oddly enough, well, not oddly enough, co- no, it's not even a coincidence. The whole reason why it happens is the reason why it happens is that there is such an elevated epidemic of um, impotence in young people because of pornography. Right. Um, but, of course, yes, they can take Viagra, but they're suffering from the same impotence for the same reasons of why I think Graham right, is suffering right, from right, impotence, right. which is self-loathing essentially or rewiring of the brain due to sexual experiences um do you want to do you want to go first Jess on dating it dated um well yeah that did kind of I was I was thinking about that question and I actually watched it on VHS Mm. or I tried to and then it completely fucked out so I had to switch to the um online version but on my copy it had like all the marketing terms were hilarious Sexually charged from the Ooh. LA Times, scorchingly erotic, oh. <laughs> Rolling Stone. Not sure if I'd say that. And <laughs> Sexy and shocking from Empire. And I just, yeah, I think it's really interesting because they're obviously trying to market it like a sexy thriller or something, or like an erotic, yeah, like like a Basic Instinct or one of those other terribly faux intellectual, you know, uh, erotic thrillers from the eighties, but. It's like not that at all. So no. I think the kind of way that it was marketed is kind really of the dated. antithesis of it, really. Yeah, but I think for so audiences sad. at that time, it probably was all of those things. Well, like, I think the yeah. things that it, that have dated are this idea that a that female sexuality is so shocking, or that like talking about impotence is shocking. I think it's frankness is what you know. It's frankness about sexuality, particularly um, for an American film. Yeah, yeah, particularly, and for those kind of people in the movie, they're not degenerates or they're not portrayed as like yeah. outsiders. They're like suburban, middle class, middle class, you know, white ambitious people. people. Yeah, but I think in terms of that, it is actually still quite fresh. Like the subject matter that it does discuss is still would be still shocking mm. to Americans. Not particularly, I'd say here, but it is. It, it sort of skates the line of being so psychologically deep that it's very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. I mean, apart from the epic eyebrows and hair situation that is in that film, <laughs> and big mouths, um, like big wet mouths. 
I mean, that's really the only kind of dated thing because like when I was looking at Graham, I'm like, yeah, what if he was on Tinder? Because Graham is this kind of proto dude now. Like, Mm. you know, he lives at home with a fucking typewriter and he's interviewing women about sex on a VHS. These are all things that I could imagine some dude studying at RMIT in Brunswick doing today. Mm -hmm. It's very hipster. (laughs) It's actually, it's, it's cut in terms of its look. The clothes yeah. and everything are the things that hipsters wear today. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't, I don't, in content, I don't think it's dated. The only thing that for me um, d- was dated was the soundtrack at the end when they're like, um, when Andy McDowell and James Spader are talking mm. and they have this like weird thriller esque soundtrack. Synth. I don't know if you noticed that. Yeah. It, was, it was a bit like, um, I don't think that, you know. That worked for me now, but, but. and I, the only reason why I noticed it was because then I realised that there is no sound, there is no music in that whole film right. except for in the beginning okay. and at the end. Okay, yeah, I didn't know which is that. absolutely phenomenal as well as you can imagine at the time that it came out. Yeah, um, where it's all like kablamo, lethal weapon, yeah, kind of situations. Yeah, um, um, that I read an interesting thing about the soundtrack that like the audio record was really rough and not very good. And that led him to make the stylistic decision to he uses he often sort of like leads into a you know subsequent scene with the dialogue from the yeah, scene. yeah so which is amazing a, yeah. yeah it's a great it's a great kind of you know it borrows from the new wave and stuff but I I love that part like that sort of technical thing about the film it's well the, th- the intro is pretty much in the first 10 minutes mm. is all do- um over what do you call it voiceover yeah from Anne's character talking yeah. to her therapist yeah and you just see you know all the other characters um introduced in that 10 minutes while she's talking and everyone's set up in 10 minutes the, yeah. the whole movie is completely set up and it's and the characters are really clearly kind of introduced and it's great I think, very and, and also in a, like a very me- metaphorical way as well, because she's talking about her middle class existential angst, which is you know th- for that therapy session, it's about the garbage. What are we going to do about like, all the garbage? And as she says, "Well, what are we going to do about all the garbage?" It's James Spader cleaning himself yeah. in a restroom <laughs> with in his a t-shirt t- in a Texaco, <laughs> you know. And I'm just like, this is it's just to me. I mean, I've seen this movie so many times since I was, you know, like 14 mm. years old. I've mm. probably seen it 20 times at least. And like with everything, you see different things as you get older because of your experience. But particularly from a critical point of view, like it is so out of the box, mm. perfect. It's extraordinary. Like mm. you just, he he's a, he's a genius. Like you can't kind of create that level of edit and that level of self-referential you know, like how awkward would that be? Like that's really kind of masochistic to, you know, sort of bash that out and then, you know, make people perform that in front of you. Cronenberg actually does that quite a lot as well and fights that he's had with his wife. And, oh, my God. Mm. Yeah. Um, so it, it's just an extraordinary feel to me. And I cry in it every time. Really? Every time I cry at the end. Oh. And I love the ambiguity of it as well. And I think that that is something that is so different about American cinema. Like there isn't really kind of like a hard resolution, no pun intended, you know, like you don't know whether they have overcome their sexual impotence together Mm -hmm. or whether they're Mm -hmm. just like living this romantic sexually impotent life, but they're (laughs) in love and they are moving Mm -hmm. on. Like they've just snuggling, snuggling, (laughs) 
<laughs> not watching video, not recording videos. But I, I really love the ambiguity of it all. Yeah. But I do have one question for you guys. So, uh, like, right at the end when, you know, uh, Peter Gallagher's, like, whole world has fallen apart and, he, you know, he's at the corner office block and, uh, you know, there's this kind of, like, scene where he is getting, oh, no, he's lost a deal and now his boss wants to speak to him. Like, what do you think that that's about? Like, is it just him getting his comeuppance or do you think it's about, like, because he's not a family man, quote, unquote, anymore, he has no value? Yeah, that occurred to me, actually, that um, the loss of the marriage might, you know, that might be a comment on the the tenor of the marriage in his life. Like mm. that it's sort of I actually a, have a good quote on, on this very ah, m- thing because fantastic. I took note of it because um, Soderbergh said, because John Gallagher was, I mean, Peter Gallagher, that character was the least um, well-drawn of his characters. So he really worked with the actors to kind of draw out more. And he said Peter Gallagher is a brilliant actor and brought that character a lot more nuanced than Soderbergh actually intended. He just tended, intended for him to be an asshole, But yep. he did say that... Um, he made him more complicated. He, yeah, he made him a bit more a bit more charming and a bit more likeable in some way, or a yeah. bit, you know, underst- even though he's a dick, like he, he kind of... Um, he's funny, you know, like, and... Um, but Soderbergh said about him, he, re- he represents a certain type of American for whom what is bad is not something um, reprehensible... But to get caught is so doing something ah, bad is whoa. is not the point. But right. if you get caught, that's you know. And he says that happens every day in American politics, you mm. know. And that was then. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. The same and particularly now. like this would have been shot and filmed before the '88 stock crash, mm. so it was almost like heralding that type of behavior as well. Mm. So by the time it came out, you would have had all of these stockbrokers of you know. All these liars, quote unquote, that we talked about in the film have, you know, cr- completely gutted the entire American economy. Mm. It's so zeitgeisty. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, I think that's essentially like a lot of Soderbergh's work. Also working with archetypes, mm. but, and they're real archetypes. They're not kind of like this cheesy kind of crap. Like the archetypes in this were really great. And I also want to ask you another question. Um, do you think that Magic Mike is this film again? Yes, in definitely. 20, in the no, 2010s? Absolutely. No, yes. that is absolutely one of my yes. notes is that the film that it most reminds me of is Magic Mike. There's definitely a connection between them. I mean, stylistically, just stylistically on a, on a formal level, there are so many, the soundtrack thing, that, you know, the dialogue that kind of is detached from the, the image mm. and that kind of operates separately yeah. and joins the images together in different ways. But also... I think the fact that it's like, you know, essentially about these very banal people and banal places and it's set in these very ugly rooms, you know, like, and yet somehow it's so romantic and kind of dreamy and you get sucked into it. And it's like Steven Soderbergh's, I mean, not Steven Soderbergh, James Spader's character is a creep. He's he's a total creep. It's like watching it this time around, I was like, ew, like he's gross, but I love him. And somehow I'm buying this whole romance at the end. And I think Magic Mike is like terribly tragic, but somehow a sweet romance at the same time. And yeah, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Well, he, um, I mean, Soderbergh didn't, intend that ending he had a much harsher ending where they all just go their separate ways um and he softened it for american audiences right that you know he went with the sort of (laughs) they needed some conclusion (laughs) like halfway but (laughs) i love it when and character well andy mcdowell's characters like what are you doing disgusting (laughs) what you're doing is really disgusting yeah i know she just said that's pathetic yeah i was like oh 
That's where she can puts you imagine the jeans, like making the jeans the... on. When Anne puts the jeans on, watch out. Can cause... you imagine like making that film about yourself and have Andy McDowell standing in front of you talking to the fake you saying, that's pathetic? Like, that is so fucking full on. It's true. And so he is redeemed through his own filmmaking process that he has to give it a better ending so he's not so masochistic. Yeah. I have to say that part of the film, even though I love when she turns the tables and kind of puts the camera back on him and I love how bolshy she is, I felt like, even though I love the romance of it and I bought the love of the love story, I watching it this time I was like, I don't need him to be redeemed by it. I don't need him to be psychologized. I don't need him to like have a reason for his behaviour. Like, sure. I, I just don't. Like as as an older person watching this, I'm like, it's just kind of interesting. Doesn't need to be explained to me, like why he's videotaping these women and getting off on, you know, like. Oh, so you're talking about the whole like he's just devastated by his ex girlfriend yeah. thing? Yeah, mm-hmm. he was it's a, a pathological liar, you know. Oh, yeah. the dick but there's something he said, like a piece of dialogue that was a bit ambiguous to me. He said he expressed his feelings non-verbally. Mm. So what does that mean? Violence. Like, violence. I, that was my assumption. That, me too. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So that's why he's trying to redeem himself by distancing himself from, you know, like still like exploring women's sexuality but distancing himself from them. But um but yeah, that's that was what I read which yeah, I, I found I read a bit it like as violence. a bit gross, you know, like uh, even less interested in him redeeming himself. <laughs> <laughs> but I also like think that that is the machination of um the videotape is that okay, as someone who is a self-redeeming pathological liar, it's the only thing that he can hold on to. That's that's a literal um, recording of transactions. So he can actually know that that happened and that existed and that is actually how it was. And then you can sort of see how the pathology sort of grew from there. I had another question to ask you. I've got a question. Can oh, I yeah. ask a question? <laughs> of course. I've got a question for you guys about the role of video in this film because I think it's you know it's in the title of the film and it's like obviously a big part of the film um the action that plays out um so yeah I'm just interested in how you read that and how you might connect it to contemporary life the role of film video video yeah um well the fact that it's so easy for him to just switch on a camera and start talking like that's you know probably hadn't been seen in film before or seen as a I mean I guess that's the advent of um home cameras like handy cams and that kind of thing um I don't think American audiences ever thought that you could do use it for that and (laughs) there's a lot made of you know like Peter Gallick um I should just call him John he you know he's like do you know what this creep's gonna do with it you know they're gonna bounce it off a satellite or something yeah oh the 80s you know Is you going to screen it somewhere? Did you write a, you know, did you sign a contract? Like, well, I think there was a little yeah. media panic about um, sex tapes. Like, I think that yeah. was kind of happening. I read something about how Kevin Bacon went to see the film, and like, as it was, as he was watching it, like the media were just breaking a story about his not Kevin Bacon, Rob. Rob Lowe. Rob Lowe. Oh, they were breaking yeah. a story about his sex tape. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I, I think it sort of speaks more down into like a sort of economical and social paranoia that particularly Americans, but at the time it could have had, which is that is literally putting the process of filmmaking into people's hands. So something that was seriously controlled. Mm. And so it's really metaphorical in that way because of, mm. especially that the film was so successful. But I also think that, yes, that's true. Like, um, 
it's giving people even more agency to be perverted or weird or even just themselves, I think, in a lot of ways. Like, mm. it's breaking open that channel of production uh, and anything could happen, <laughs> you know. There's a great line from um, from Anne to her sister Cynthia where um, – you know, she's quizzing her about what does he do and like, what does he ask these women and what, you know, Anne's quizzing Cynthia about what he asked her when he felt like videotaped her. And, um, she's sort of being cagey and guarded and she's like, you know, you told a perfect stranger all about your sex life and you won't even talk to your own sister. And I think that's kind of like a little bit of a um, indication of the the way that what you're talking about, the way that video offered this way to kind of compartmentalize your life or like open up new channels for self-expression that maybe you didn't want to be public or, you know, like had negative and positive implications for people's identity building. And yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously that's like exploded with social media and the online world, but Mm. I found it interesting to see an incipient kind of, you know, harbinger of that. Well, with all new technology comes fear. Mm. Seriously. Like, and that's just, that's just the technology of the time. Like there's so many films these days about, you know, like when Tinder goes wrong and fucking sexting goes wrong and all this Mm. kind of stuff. It's, um, what is that? There was that texting movie. I can't remember what it's called. It looked terrible. I never saw it, but it was just like a movie about texting, like, <laughs> like a mother and a daughter. Oh, oh LOL. Or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Incidentally, not the only film called LOL. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. I, had I was going to ask about um, the whole thing. I don't know what you guys thought about. There's a couple of things that I found a bit maybe not not so sure about but um the whole madonna whore thing with Mm. the two sisters and the whole like um the sister rivalry thing even though that's kind of resolved at the end when um Anne brings her sister a peace lily as a or Mm. a plant as a kind of peace offering i don't care that you fucked my husband it's you know let's just be sisters but her sister you know like um cynthia is so jealous of Anne because she's so pretty and you know, Anne's just so judgmental of Cynthia because she's just so into sex and I don't know, I just find that stuff. Like, and also the whole male gaze of the video, you know, like, yeah. I don't know. He does interesting things with it, but at the same time he's really, he's really just replicating the whole Madonna whore thing, which I find... Yeah, I found it know, questionable as well. Yeah. And I was like, why is she friends with her bitch sister? Like, basically, why is she still friends with her yeah. And I was like, well, because she doesn't have any other friends. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was like a major yeah. dynamic between them. Yeah. That she's really isolated and it's kind of yeah. cut herself off. And, yeah. Um, yeah. I sort of, yeah, I think it was a shame that it kind of did replicate that bitchy female dynamic, like cliche. Mm. Um, but it did sort of, re- you know. I think, the act- I think there was more to it than that. And I yeah, think definitely. the actors definitely did something to, yeah. you know, make that more interesting and and funny and all that you know like they're yeah. both great i love them yeah. both yeah. well let's first of all i just want to say they do not do not look like sisters whatsoever no, the half, italian one half sisters <laughs> potentially with a white mother um but i think it really sort of more speaks to that whole paradigm of the 80s where like i was growing up in the 80s as were you guys and all i remember was like the female orgasm was the thing that kind of came into the public <laughs> yeah 
consciousness and sort of before this film you had things like nine and a half weeks and you know the female orgasm was you know, like starting to be talked about and female sexuality so I kind of feel like they're both sort of this representation of like puritanical America doing everything right buttoned up blah 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 and then this kind of like new 80s woman who's yeah. just like essentially a sex banshee yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or that's what they think that these yeah. new women are yeah. you know yeah. and she was um, really arty and yeah. patted around on her Bare, in her bare feet yeah. just, she's know, fucking her sister's paint. husband <laughs> you know I, I feel like a lot of this film is about paranoias like social yeah. paranoias yeah. and really kind of playing them off against each other in a really interesting way yeah. but the one thing that I did think of that was different the first time the different uh, that I saw this film since all the other times previous was it really kind of struck me that I felt it was kind of like this western format so you've got I mean it's not exactly a stranger but a stranger comes to town southern town Mm. and starts you know righting the wrongs of the system quote unquote which you know the system is I don't know puritanical sex phobia or something like that uh and once I sort of like wrestled with this western thing it sort of became more and more clear Mm. to me that that's sort of theologically what it was supposed to be what do you guys yeah i think that's a good point yeah absolutely yeah it's a small kind of small town really they literally are in a small town nothing much going on yeah their lives are very small yeah he does kind of breeze in like a tumbleweed doesn't he? <laughs> yeah on, <laughs> on, on, hair. on a on a wave of banjo music yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's true that's true I, I also thought his, his character, like the role that his character played in the, in the relationships is a bit like, it made me think of um, George Emerson in A Room with a View, which is a very long bow to draw. But um, also uh, the other character that he reminded me of was um, uh, Ron Kirby in Douglas Sirk's All That Heaven Allows. Have you guys seen that movie? No. Okay, so it's like a classic melodrama from the 50s and... Um, like George Emerson in A Room with a View, this character played by Rock Hudson kind of like breezes into this woman's life and he's very earthy. He's the gardener and he's like, you know, not kind of um, buttoned down and conservative um, and not bought into kind of the capitalist American culture that she's surrounded by. And yeah, I think it's sort of that, it's that kind of romantic notion of this like um, kind of truthful, natural man or something like who is kind of there to like, you know, expose all the BS. Well, one of the things, he did, yeah, and one of, like, one of the first things he did when he shows up is, I've got to use the toilet. Yeah, I've got yeah, to use exactly. the bathroom. Yeah, like, yeah. can you imagine something like that in an American yeah. sort of movie? That would have been full a on. bit full on because they're so weird about And then he comes stuff. back and Restroom, says, oh, yeah. I was, like. I wasn't ready. <laughs> oh, actually, it's, it's coming now. I've got to go. So he goes off again. <laughs> like, yeah, I love that bit. I and then he that. looks at her and goes, have you ever been on television? I know. <laughs> It was so mannered. I watched it with my partner and he said, uh, he's like, I really liked it, but, you know, I found their performances really quite wooden and mannered, mm, mm. you know, and I'm like, oh, man, I'm like, this is the prototype for all indie film that came afterwards. Yeah. Because of this method of filmmaking, I'm like, it's just normal to me that that's what it yeah. would be. But yeah. seeing it through his eyes, I found that really funny. Yeah, it kind of reminded me a bit of Hal Hartley. Hal Hartley, yeah, definitely. That's exactly what I was thinking of. And he yeah. was also very influenced by the French New Wave. So I think there's sort of like a bit of a, you know, theme there. But, I mean, one thing we haven't talked about enough is James Spader. Okay. And the fluffy hair and the oh gooey eyeballs. Can I? The wet eyeballs. <laughs> he had like the that full, it was like lizard face. Like as soon as he claps eyes on Anne for the first time, it's like slow wet. lizard face. 
just, you know, peeling back the layers of skin, you know. <laughs> These, like, very frequently damp upper lip. Yeah. Well, it is the South. There's this whole the damp they're very fever yeah, that's they're happening very down there. Everyone's damp. <laughs> What do you want to talk about, James Spader? I mean, obviously, he's gone from bad boy actor to, well, kind of preppy actor. Totally preppy, yeah. To this breakout role <laughs> of being total creep, which then he emulated for the rest of his life. Totally. So one could say, you know, where there's fire, where there's smoke, there's fire. <laughs> I guess my question is, why is he also so hot? <laughs> oh, that's such a good question. I put it down to my ginger sexuality. But if you guys think he's super hot as well. He's kind of unthreatening. I think, I mean, he's appeal to Anne, like Anne says to her therapist. He's kind of arty. That's okay. You know, like. No, no swift movements. <laughs> if he's coming towards you, it'll be very slow. You could get out of the way. He does look, yeah, he's not, he's not very, he's sort of a little bit, um, What's the word? Like when he's, you know, has his shirt off when he's getting changed and it's like, yeah, you're not running any marathons. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Have you guys seen the TV show Difficult People? No. no. Uh, homework. But the, it's a very bitchy, horrible, amazing show. And, uh, yeah, one of the characters. It's amazing. One of the, one of the gay men just turns around one day and he's like, what is it with you straight women and Jane Spader? <laughs> and I was like, lol, 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 lol. So it is a thing. Like, it's totally a it's thing. A thing. <laughs> but oh. it's inexplicable. I don't know. Maybe like, there's a support group for it. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> we all love a navel gazer. And I think he's the yeah. ultimate kind of. He's kind of like the sex criminal next door. Like <laughs> he's really kind of non-threatening, but you know that yeah. he'd be like, you'd be like, whoa, all right, yeah. sure. Let's, he's, he's let's try that. to the mind, but not <laughs> to the body. <laughs> <laughs> the most da- dangerous of all. <laughs> all right. I think on that note, we'll wrap it up. Yeah. And we'll move to the next section, which is pressing pause. Press pause, press pause. So before we finish the show each month, we'd like to press pause and share some history, personal or otherwise, on the films that we cover. So ladies, do you have anything that you want to share about Sex, Lies and Videotape? This is LV. I I just have a little aside that I read as I was looking through some stuff and I didn't know that Steven Soderbergh, you probably know this, but Steven Soderbergh, since the 80s, since around that time, has had confederacy of dunces on his I list know. of projects that he really wants oh to God. get. Oh my god, it's my up. favorite book ever. That would be incredible. Oh my god, and but it's taken this long, like it still hasn't happened. Like he said, that the, would be, it'd a, be a very hard movie to make. Yeah, like, like Will Ferrell is on their list of people what? to play. Um, <laughs> what's his name? Horatio. What's his name? Um, oh, um, Cornelius Horatio, something like that. Oh, I, do you know how much I think about him? Yeah. Whenever I see, like, uh, whenever I hear about the wheels of Fortuna or Fortuna, if I'm looking at something <laughs> astrologically, I think about him. But that movie is super dark. Oh, like, yeah. I mean, that movie, that book will be super dark to make as a film. Yeah. And another aside from another amazing, my favorite book from the 80s, Geek Love. Do you, have you either of you read that book? Oh, it's phenomenal. Anyway, it doesn't matter if you haven't seen it. Mm. If you haven't read it, don't worry. Mm. Uh, I just want to talk about like the memories that I had of mm. this film when it first mm. came out. Like going to the video store with my dad. I was like nine years old, eight years old, nine years old, mm. and I remember seeing the poster, and and that was like the first time I'd ever seen sex written in the public domain. And instantly I was scandalized. Like I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and then like this really like 
woggy chick with huge hair on the front and a mini skirt and you know that poster and it was kind of this subconscious reinforcement no reinforcement of this subconscious idea that I had that like Mediterranean women were like viewed as (laughs) hypersexual sex fiends and I just find that really interesting that that was like that first moment that yeah. I was like, oh, people are going to think of me like this or this is what my people are like or what's going to happen to me when I get older? <laughs> Don't get your phone fridge. <laughs> How am I going to afford all that hairspray? Wish they to you when you're 18. <laughs> so, <laughs> you're a woman now. <laughs> so I just thought I'd share that. Yeah, I think I felt very much the same way. Not so much about identifying with Laura San Giacomo's like you know Mediterraneanness, but I think it was like the first like kind of like adult film that was not you know there's nothing kind of adolescent or you know like I, I remember watching it and just being quite confused and compelled and like had all these complicated feelings about James Spader <laughs> who I like still really to this day. <laughs> you know like because I loved him when I was a kid yeah. like I thought he was really I didn't really understand that his his characters that he played in movies in the 80s were assholes like it just went straight over my head I was just like he's really beautiful and he wears popped collars and like you know um what are they called penny loafers with no socks (laughs) so yeah I was yeah I think it sort of made me feel all kinds of funny things I have a funny memory um I lived in a my first share house when I was I think 17 or 18 and my housemate's sister came to stay for maybe a couple of months she put up a whole wall of Andy McDowell posters <laughs> just like I did when I you know when I was a teenager I put up like Keanu and Christian posters Keanu and Christian Slater posters she just like had a full-on wall of Andy McDowell <laughs> and then when I was um you know just, this is like just last year I was talking to a friend of mine who said she'd been dating someone um from the pink what's that lesbian dating uh, site so far pink so yeah. far Shout out Pink Sofa. And this woman was <laughs> this woman was pretty obsessed with Andy McDowell. And I was like, what was her name? <laughs> same woman. Same oh person. Melbourne. That's really cute. Melbourne, so small. Oh, that's cute. Right. Yeah. lesbian. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks, guys. So that concludes our first episode of Club Soderbergh. We'd love to hear from you. Hear about your memories of Sex, Lies and Videotape or your favourite bits of Soderbergh trivia. You can contact the team at Club Soderberg, club at clubsoderberg.com or on our Facebook page, Club Soderberg, or the same for our Twitter, Club Soderberg. We'd really love to be engaged with our Soderberg fans, so please don't be shy. And we'll see you in a month for Kafka and King of the Hill. 